Good morning. It's good to be with y'all. My name is Garrett. I serve as the director of local missions here at Nova. And our scripture text today, it's going to be uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 29. So why don't you go ahead and start flipping there in your Bibles now. Uh, we're in the middle of a sermon series titled Flannel Board of the Faithful. As you just saw, we had a flannel board lesson on Moses, and that's who we're going to be talking about today. And so basically what this sermon series is, uh, we're working through Hebrews 11, not in any particular order. And Hebrews 11 is a chapter in the Bible that often gets referred to as the Hall of Faith, in which the author of Hebrews lists off a bunch of different people from ancient Israel, all of whom can be found in the Old Testament, and explains how they demonstrated faith. If you want to know what faith looks like, lived out in real human experience, according to the author of Hebrews, look at this list of people. Like I said, today we're going to be looking at the life of Moses. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read our scripture passage for us, uh, Hebrews 11, verses 23 through 29. I encourage you to follow along in your own Bibles with me. By faith... Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. This is God's word for us today. Faith as seen through the life of Moses. So at the beginning of chapter 11 of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews provides a, a definition of faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Confidence in what we hope for, assurance about what we do not see. And this is a great definition of faith. I mean, obviously it is. It is scripture. However, while this is a great definition, faith lived out in the various situations and scenarios of life, it's going to take on various nuances. Um, like think of a diamond. Picture a diamond in your head. Obviously the entire thing, it's one thing, it's a diamond. But depending on how you hold it and the various angles that you look at it, you're going to see it and experience it slightly differently. And every angle, every perspective is going to help to round out the fuller picture of what that diamond actually looks like. And today, we're going to see how the life of Moses adds to this fuller picture of faith 
as it is lived out. So we're actually going to look at three different aspects of faith that the, he, that the author of Hebrews points out about the life of Moses. And this is not an exhaustive list. It's not the only th- three things of faith, but it's the three that he identifies. And before I begin, um, the story of Moses and Exodus is long. I'm not going to cover it. In fact, I am barely going to skim parts of it. So what I encourage you to do is at some point this week, just read the story for yourself. At the very beginning of the book of Exodus, probably take you a little less than an hour to do so. It's a seminal story in the Old Testament, quite frankly, Scripture as a whole, that teaches us a whole lot about who God is, what he's like, who the people of God are supposed to be like, etc., etc., etc. So please give it a read this week. Okay, faith as seen through the life of Moses, three different aspects. First thing, first thing, faith does not give in to fear. Faith does not give in to fear. Verse 23 of our text says, By faith Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child." And they were not afraid of the king's edict. You see, at the very beginning of Moses' life, the Hebrew people were living in Egypt, and they were multiplying and becoming a very numerous people group. And this started to make Pharaoh nervous. A little bit of xenophobia. Who are these people? There's too many of them. They're not like us. And because they're not like us, it's making me nervous. So he resolved to enslave them, to put them under hard and cruel labor. That'll keep them down, he thought. But in fact, we are told in Exodus 1.10 that this just made the Hebrew people multiply even more. And so he added to their oppression even further in a truly horrific way. Exodus 1.15-16 says, The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. And this is the context that Moses is born into. Pharaoh sent down an edict that all male Hebrew babies must be killed. Let's read specifically about Moses' birth. This is Exodus 2, 1 through 9. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer... She got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. 
Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Now, like our passage in Hebrews states, Moses' parents did not give in to fear. They chose to hide Moses. Now, our text doesn't say anything specifically about this, uh, but I think it's safe to imagine uh, that there would have been an incredibly harsh punishment for anyone who did not follow Pharaoh's edict, uh, potentially a deadly punishment. Um, Certainly, parental love and parental instinct played into uh, Moses' parents hiding him, but likewise, they also did not give in to fear. Moses' parents did not give in to fear. Now let's look at uh, a little bit further in Moses' story, later in his life. So Moses was raised in Pharaoh's household as a member of Pharaoh's family, essentially, like Thomas talked about. But he still identified with the Hebrew people, with God's people at some level. In Exodus 2.10, it says, One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He still identified with God's people. In fact, he identified with God's people and not Pharaoh's household so much so that, um, I'll just read it, I'll just read it. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. Now, I think it's worth mentioning that uh, there's been a lot of debates and discussion about Moses killing this Egyptian. You know, was he justified because he was uh, standing up for an innocent person? Or did he take it too far and did he commit murder? Um, I'm not really going to get into this discussion. It's an, I just did not the time and place for it at this moment. Um, what I will say about this, though, is obviously acts of violence are not the way that God ordered the world to be. I'm just going to leave it at that. So Moses kills this Egyptian. Pharaoh gets word of this and then seeks to kill Moses, which then obviously compels Moses to flee Egypt into Midian, which is a rural community outside of Egypt. But notice how the author of Hebrews describes why Moses fled. Verse 27. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger, he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Hebrews portrays Moses as well as Moses' parents as being compelled by faith and not being compelled by fear. 
Faith does not give in to fear. Now, I just mentioned that uh, Moses and his parents uh, were not compelled by fear. Well, let's be honest, fear can be really compelling, right? Fear can make us do some stuff that we aren't proud of, right? I would imagine that fear played a really big part in uh, David killing Uriah because David had slept with Uriah's wife and gotten her pregnant. Certainly, fear played a really big part in uh, Peter denying that he even knew who Jesus was while Jesus was being crucified. If we are not on guard, fear can be incredibly compelling and make us compromise our morals and how we follow God. But let's, let's take this a little bit further, a little bit deeper, because I think more often than not, fear is a little bit more subtle than this. I think fear can compel us to place our faith in things apart from God, even when we still cognitively have faith in God. It's a little confusing. I'll explain what I mean by that. I think fear can compel us to make our faith be faith in God plus something else. It's almost like we're hedging our bets subconsciously in our mind a little bit. Like, yes, we trust in God, but just to be safe. Yes, I have faith in God and his promises, but in practice, maybe sometimes it looks more like God plus my own abilities. Or faith in God plus another person. Faith in God plus my own political beliefs. Faith in God plus financial stability. And friends, the faith that lives in our heads, it has to be consistent with the faith that we live out. And this is not to say, therefore, uh, you know, don't work hard uh, or don't be wise with your finances or don't develop and expect trustworthy relationships. That's not what I'm getting at at all. We just need to be honest with ourselves with where our heart is at with these things. Where does our faith truly lie deep down within us? And Scripture is full of warnings like this. Matthew 6.24 talks about how you cannot serve two masters. And as many of us know, this verse is particular about money, but it can apply to anything, really. can't serve two masters. You go all the way back to the Ten Commandments. The first of the two Ten Commandments is, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no idols for yourselves. There's a lot of warnings about this in Scripture. And I should mention, um, fear itself, not a bad emotion. It's very human. It's a very natural emotion. I mean, my goodness, Jesus felt a whole lot of fear in the Garden of Gethsemane Uh, the night that he was betrayed to be tortured and crucified. Gospel of John even tells us that he began to sweat droplets of blood because he was so scared. But 
but he did not give in to fear. He still did what he came on this earth to do. Fear itself is not a wrong emotion, but being compelled by fear is a different story. It can lead us astray. It can make us put faith, our faith in things apart from God. So a moment of self-reflection. What are the things that compel you to place your faith in something other than God. And my guess is that a lot of the time it's caused by fear of some kind. Faith does not give in to fear. That was our first point today. Faith does not give in to fear. And our second point for today is faith does not give in to the pleasures of sin. Faith does not give in to the pleasures of sin. As we already read, Moses grew up in Pharaoh's palace and was a part of Pharaoh's households. He grew up in the luxury of all luxuries. Wealth, the best food, best education, people waiting on him hand and foot. Nikes, apparently. It was a life of comfort and luxury and pleasure, and like Thomas talked about, it was off the backs of an oppressed people. But like I said before, Moses still identified with God's people. According to Hebrews 11, by faith, Moses gave up a life of ease and comfort and luxury to instead follow God fully, even if that meant identifying with an enslaved and oppressed people. Verses 24 through 26 of Hebrews 11 says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Once again, let's be honest for a second. Let's be honest with ourselves. Sometimes sin is really, really tempting for no other reason than it is pleasurable and fun. I mean, if it wasn't, we wouldn't be compelled to do it, right? Can I confess something to y'all for a second? Like in a moment of confession. Um, let's talk about plan or a plaid day. Let's talk about plaid day for a second. So for those of you who were uh, not here or maybe forgot, like four or five months ago, we had plaid day here at Nova. It was just a fun, silly little day where we're like, hey, one Sunday, let's encourage everyone to wear plaid. And a lot of people did. A lot of people wore plaid on plaid day, and there were some people who didn't. There was one person in particular who did not uh, wear plaid on plaid day. Somebody who was on staff, somebody who was up on the platform that day. It was me. Here's my confession to y'all. That was very much on purpose. 
I own so much plaid and flannel. It I actually had to go out of my way not to wear plaid that day, but I very intentionally chose not to wear it. So one of my character flaws, albeit a very minor one, uh, but a character flaw nonetheless, is that if uh, somebody tells me that I have to do something, but that something is kind of inconsequential or not that big of a deal, Everything in me says, oh, I'm not doing that for sure. <laughs> it's plaid day. Everybody wear plaid. You got to wear plaid on plaid day. Oh, I'm definitely not wearing plaid on plaid day then. That's what's said inside me. If it's a hard rule, like it's a, it's a hard, hard rule, or something that's rather important, you will not find somebody who is uh, more... Uh, a more stringent rule follower than I, but when it comes to inconsequential things, that's a completely different story. <laughs> and you know what? I kind of like it. I kind of enjoy doing it. I kind of going, I, I like going against the grain in this way to kind of be a, a, a light contrarian. <laughs> Now, is this a super sinful attitude of me, like in some big moral sense? No, of course not. But, but it does go to show doing things that you're not supposed to do, and it's going to vary for each of us what those things actually are. Doing things that you're not supposed to do can be fun or pleasurable. We got to be honest about that. There's a draw to it. And quite honestly, let's bring this to more serious note. Um, we live in a world of indulgence. It's all around us all the time. And I think there tends to be this general feeling in our society right now that if something feels good and it's not hurting anybody, then just go for it. Pursue wealth at all costs. Indulge in pornography. It doesn't hurt anyone. The only person you should be looking out for is yourself. Don't let anyone tell you what to do. And these are all lies. So the high schoolers in our youth group are currently working through a book right now called Live No Lies. Live No Lies. Uh, by John Mark Comer. Um, I truly cannot recommend this book enough. Essentially, the thesis of this book is that the crux of what we call spiritual warfare, you know, the kind of just this tug between good and evil that we feel, at the crux of it is a battle between truth and lies. Truth and lies. Truth obviously being God and how God ordered the world. And lies being that the lies that Satan tells us. By the way, Satan in Greek means deceiver. Fun little fact. Think about Adam and Eve during the fall. The Satan lies to them. Did God really say that you shouldn't eat from this tree? No, 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 no. Let me, let me tell you what's really going on. He doesn't, want to eat. he doesn't want you to eat from this tree because he knows. He knows that if you eat from that tree, you're going to be just like him. And he doesn't want that. That's the reason he told you that. He lied to them. 
He also tried to implant lies in the mind of Jesus while Jesus was being tempted in the desert. God's ways are truth. They lead to life and flourishing and goodness, but there are a whole lot of lies in the world that try to tell you that the way to life and goodness are the ways apart from God. And I think sometimes God's ways often get viewed as these arbitrary little rules that don't actually matter that much. Like he just makes up some random rules for us to follow. And no, that's not it at all. God's ways lead to life. But there are lies in the world that try to tell you that straying away from God and his ways, that's what's going to lead to happiness and life. And let's once again be honest. Sex and porn and indulgence and selfishness will bring pleasure in an immediate sense. But in the long term, these things have the capacity to destroy when they are disordered. What good is it for someone to gain the world but lose their soul? That comes from Mark 8.36. And this isn't to say that sex and good food self-care, etc. It's not to say that these are bad things. But when we begin to seek them outside of how God ordered the world, or even if we elevate them above God, that's when they get destructive. There are competing narratives in our world of what will lead to the good life. And we have a choice of who we're going to believe. Faith does not give in to the pleasure of sin. So the first point today was faith does not give in to fear. Second point, uh, faith does not give in to the pleasure of sin. And finally, our last point today is that faith trusts in God's promises. Faith trusts in God's promises. Verses 28 and 29 of our text. By faith, he, that being Moses kept the Passover in the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. So you see, as Moses was leading the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt through God's direction and through God's power, God enacted a series of plagues in Egypt in order that they might see his power. Pharaoh in Egypt was viewed as a god, and so it was like God battling this pseudo-god, this not real god, and obviously the real god wins out. But Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. He wouldn't let the Israelites go. And the last plague was that uh, the angel of death descended onto Egypt and killed the firstborn of each household. And God instructed Moses to tell the Israelites to place the blood of a lamb on the doorframe. This would be a sign for the angel of death to move on from that household. And by faith, Moses and the Israelites did so. It was this last plague that compelled Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. And so Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt And when they got to the Red Sea, though, Pharaoh changed his mind. 
He wanted the Israelites back, and so he sent his armies to go retrieve the Israelites, bring them back. And so the Israelites were stuck between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's armies. And so what God did is he pulled the waters of the Red Sea back to make a passageway for the Israelites to go down. And by faith, they walked between the waters. And let's be honest, it would have taken a lot of faith to do so if you're walking through the ocean. These two, these two big walls of water have a lot of faith that they won't just come crashing in on you. The Israelites crossed to safety and the waters crashed down on Pharaoh's army. Moses and the Israelites needed to trust God when they placed the blood on the doorframe and they needed to trust God when he held back the waters. Faith trusts in God's promises. And then this begs the question for us today. What are God's promises for us as modern-day followers of him? And quite frankly, um, it's all those R-E words. You know, like redemption, restoration, the renewal of all things. We all contribute to the pain of the world at different, in different ways and at different capacities. We all contribute to the pain of the world. But through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we are offered free forgiveness for how we contribute to the pain of the world. And I should note really quickly, earlier, I talked a lot about sin, both sin caused by fear and sin caused by indulgence. Yes, we should be doing our best to avoid these things, but we will screw up in the future. It's guaranteed. It doesn't mean that if you somehow give in to fear or indulgence in a moment that you don't have faith anymore. That's not what I'm saying at all. We will give in to these things. We're imperfect, but there is nothing, not a single thing you can do that will ever make God stop loving you. That will ever take away his free forgiveness for you. So I encourage you, wherever you are at in your faith journey, to accept this free forgiveness. It's freedom. It's truth. It's love. It's everything. And another part of this promise is that this redemption that we experience now, it's but a foretaste of what is to come. God promises that although the world is broken and filled with sin, even really, really horrific sin at, the time, at times, all will be made right one day. He is going to right what is wrong in the world. I don't know about you guys, but... Uh, Can be difficult to remember at times, um, especially like uh, weeks, like the past few weeks that we've had with the um, horrific acts of violence, the the shootings. There are no words, you know. Um, 
The world's a really broken, broken place. Um, And I think in times like this, our minds kind of want to go to why? Why did this, why God, why did this happen? Quite frankly, I'm not going to try and offer an explanation of why. I mean, you can say sin, this brutal, brutal disease that runs through the worlds, but to simply say it's because of sin, I don't know. Kind of just at this moment seems trite or dismissive. It's true, but you know what I mean. I don't know. It's, um, it's times like this when I can understand why Old Testament figures like David and, you know, like the prophets would actually cry out to God, like physically cry out to him, like, God, please bring your restoration quickly because we need it really, really, really badly. I think it's times like this, at least for me as well, maybe you share in this. Um, And it's also really easy to see why we need a Savior, why we have to have hope of some kind, why we need to trust in God's promises. Like, quite honestly, I don't know how people could cope with events like the shootings from the past few weeks if they didn't have hope. Like, the fact of the matter is those things happened. Lives were lost. We can either choose to trust in God's promises and have hope Or what's the alternative? Nihilism? Nothing matters? That sounds like a terrible way to live your life. God will bring redemption and restoration and restorative justice. That is his promise to us. And he has never failed in his promises. But even more than this, I think it's important to remember that God also suffers alongside us. We see this in the person of Jesus. We see this in his character throughout Scripture. His heart breaks along with ours, and it's right to grieve. He grieves. I think it's just time. It's okay to not, not know why, but just take time to grieve and be sad. And I don't know about all of you, but weeks like these past few, they make me yearn very, very, very deeply for the redemption and restoration that started in Jesus to be completed. Amen? Would you pray with me? God, it's, it's in times like these where it's 
just don't really know what to say or what to pray for. It's devastating. (sighs) Yeah. Our world is truly filled with brokenness and sin. And it hurts. Quite honestly, it hurts. But God, you do promise that the redemption that was started in Jesus will be completed. That one day, it will be made no more. All this hurt, all this pain, all this suffering. And so we do ask God, would it just come quick? Would it come quickly? We yearn for it deeply. And God, we may not know why, the ins and outs and all these questions that are flowing through our heads, we may not know why, but even in not knowing why, we trust you. You are trustworthy. God, we believe, but even then, help us in our unbelief. We love you, God. We trust you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.